Hello. Marky, I'm sorry, man. I keep missing your call. <laughs> the last couple weeks have been a bit of a blur. I haven't slept much. My voice has constantly been raw from talking on the phone so much. That's how many calls have been coming in after episodes 7 and 8 aired. One of those calls, as you heard, was from Marky Hall. We spoke for roughly 30 minutes and discussed some of what he heard in episode 7 that was said about him being seen with Rhonda by several people. Namely, Chuck Thompson and Rat. These timelines you put on here this last time, they just definitely ain't matching up. In regards to which? I was supposed to be one place at 10.30. If I'm, if I'm not badly mistaken, Mr. Snap, uh, by 11.30, that whole place is full of people. If I remember correctly. But I'm sure that would be in the GBI report. Yeah, and unfortunately, the GBI report, you know, I don't have. What I do have is a copy of the dispatch log. Okay. Which, according to the dispatch log, the first call came in at 11.15. The first officer arrived on the scene at 11.45. Well, uh, I just don't, I now don't know what to tell you. From Imperative Entertainment, this is Fox Hunter. The timeline of events we're working off of seems to be in question in several of the accounts we have, but most of what we know is thought to have happened between approximately 10.30 p.m. and 11.30 p.m., give or take. In a recent call with Chuck Thompson, he stated that he was sure it was no earlier than 11.30 that he allegedly encountered Marky and Rhonda. But I asserted that that really didn't fit. After him hearing me out and hearing the other statements made about the timeline from people like Layla Miller, Rat, and Milton Coleman himself, he said that it could have been earlier. After all, it was 31 years ago. But mainly what I'm going off of is the dispatch log, which we should be able to count on as accurate. Well, you said you got 911 calls, is that what you said? I have the dispatch log. Yeah, I don't. They, okay, they didn't yeah. record them back then. That right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, what, I mean, because Bobby Jean, Don's wife, took the county calls at her, at home at her home, and we you we didn't have cell phones. That's where she got me at home. And you, so you think that it was earlier that you got the call from from Bobby? Yeah, I don't know. I I couldn't tell you exactly what time it was. It was it was around eleven ish probably, I, but I you know, I couldn't tell you exactly. It was 30-something years ago. But this is something that I don't understand. I've spoken to former employees at the dispatch center, and I'm told that when the sheriff's department and police station closed for the night, the calls were routed to the dispatch center, not the Creamer's house or anyone else's. I tried to call Don Creamer to ask him for some clarification on this, but got his voicemail and left a message asking him to call me. But going back to the timeline that night, Marky tells me that he feels it was earlier that he and the other officers arrived. Much earlier. I, I, just, I just think by 11.30 everybody was there. I don't know if it was wrote down later or what. Yeah, I, don't, I just don't have a clue. 
here's where my mind goes with this when I hear Marky's recollection of the time. Most people do seem to have slightly different time frames of when they arrived, when they saw other people, when phone calls were made, and so on. But one person who might have the most accurate representation of time that night is Milton Coleman. The events that transpired that night have been burned into his brain and have been relived, thought about, and poured over for the past 31 years, nearly day in and day out. Here he is in my very first interview from back in January with him and Gail about how things played out that night. This is from the point where Deputy Don Creamer got involved. When Don Creamer come up, he was, like I say, Chief Deputy. He walked around a few minutes and he said, we need to call the GBI. So they call Richard Deeds, which is, was the local GBI agent on call. And he told them, told them he says, call out, call dispatch and told, find out where all the deputies was at and call them out. And want to know where Marky hadn't answered his, Marky Hall, which hadn't, he was a deputy, hadn't answered his call. They said, he's already signed off for tonight. And this was approximately one o'clock. 1 a.m. There's a big difference between 1 a.m. and 10.30 or 11. And if he got the call at approximately 1 a.m., would he really have been playing with his young toddlers at that late hour? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think so. But, you know, it was 30 years ago. If I remember right, I was playing with my youngins. Okay, because, I mean, again, that's, you know, understand, like, that's a big time discrepancy there. You know? There it is, yeah. And and if it's 1 a.m., I have a hard time believing that you'd be on the floor playing with your kids, because, yeah. you know, I mean. Well, that's, that's something you'd have to take up with Don there about the time. Milton says he was standing next to Don Creamer when he overheard on the radio that they had woken Marky up. Milton also doesn't remember Marky being out at the site where Rhonda's car was found, as he said he was, but says it is possible that he just didn't see him. Once again, I asked Marky about Rhonda. When we talked the other day, you said that you had never met Rhonda. No. Did you know who she was? No. But in my interview with Milton and Gail back in January, I hear this. How much older than Rhonda would you have been at that time? Marky was married and had a couple of kids. And did he know Rhonda? Well, yeah. And recently, I was contacted by another of Rhonda's friends, one of the closest people to her, Christy Kicklighter. During our conversation, Christy shared this story with me. Marky Hall saying he didn't even know who she was. No. Because I'll never forget the mule-eating briars. First of all, I mean, common sense, you know, common sense. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew everybody's business. You know, um, you can't do anything in a small town because before you get home, somebody's already told your parents. And uh, that's really the way it was. And then the aspect that Rhonda was gorgeous. I mean, she was a stunner. She turned heads. There was not a boy in Hazelhurst that did not know Rhonda Coleman. One time, I remember specifically, we, it was one evening... It might have been probably the previous summer before 
he was killed. Um, we were at a high school football game, and we had left the game, and it was a home game. Rhonda and I go up to Hardy's. We're in her car. We go inside. We get something. We we take it to go. We get in our car, and I, re- I remember very clearly when you're at Hardy's, the drive-through, when you're coming out of the restaurant, you have to step through the drive-through to go over, and then, then people park facing the door. And we get in our car, we sit down, and we look up, and Marky Hall is coming out of Hardy's, too. He is looking at Rhonda like a mule eating briars. And we kind of laugh. And we knew who he was. And he just walked on, but I'll never forget because I said to Rhonda, I said, he looked like a mule eating briars. And we giggled. And what it was was, you know, Rhonda had an amazing figure. She was blonde, blue-eyed, tanned, and, you know, and he was, he was letting her know that he noticed. And like all teenage girls, you enjoy it. And we were giggling about it. Marky stated he'd never even met Rhonda and didn't even know who she was. Yet everyone, including Marky, that I've spoken to tells me how small Hazelhurst is and how, at the time, pretty much everyone knew everyone. Rhonda was a beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, outgoing, popular girl with a friendly disposition and bubbly personality. She stood out. Rhonda also worked as a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly grocery store where most people shop for food. So how likely is it that they never encountered each other? As our conversation continued, I went back and discussed several things with Marky that we had previously talked about in my first interview with him. He wanted an opportunity to rebut some of the claims made about him. One hot topic seemed to be the tint on the windows that Rat described. But what he said, what both of them people are saying... I didn't even have tent on my police car. Daddy wouldn't allow tent on my on cars until I got a dog, and that was a year later. Okay. So, you know, I asked you if you could describe anything in particular about your car when we spoke the other day. Right, and, right. you did, yeah. Uh-huh. And I said, was there anything that you could remember about the car, you know, where the windows tinted, did it have dents or scratches, or was it a particular right. color? Yeah, and, right, right. But you didn't you didn't mention that about not not being allowed to have tent. Well, I didn't know. I mean, when you said that, I didn't realize what you was talking about. If you'd asked me, well, did I have tent on my windows? I'd have told you. Daddy didn't allow that then. But a year or so after Rhonda's murder, according to Marky, he did have tent put on his deputy car when he got a dog. I assume that was a police canine he was talking about. But one of the many many calls I received in the past week was from a gentleman who we'll call Randy. And without me mentioning Tint at all, he offered this up. One, one, one feller said on there, I think his name was Rat, or he went by Rat or something. He said he seen Marky's car. And when he described the Tint of Winders on that car, I looked dead at my wife and I said, yep, he knowed the car very well because in the sunlight or during the day, it looked like it had, I don't know, pink, champagne looking just pink ugly ass tent like the tent was faded on it 
That's the way his deputy car was. In 1990? In 1990. I know, because I've been pulled over by about every daggone one of them. Randy seems sure of this tint and that it was on the car in 1990. And also mentions that it almost seemed like it was faded a bit, as if it had been on the windows for some time. And I wonder if it can be verified any other way. Maybe someone has a picture of this deputy car from 1990. But I will offer up one piece of knowledge here from my own experience. I tinted windows for a short time when I was younger. And though you can buy colored tint, one way that tint will turn pinkish or purplish is by washing it with ammonia-based products like Windex for extended periods of time. And another reason is the adhesive or dye can break down from the extreme sun and heat like you find in South Georgia. But again, this takes time. That boy was telling the truth, and, and I know he was telling the truth. I, I don't know if he was telling the truth about him seeing the car out there or whatever, but I know he was telling the truth about the tent. Well, I'm telling you as a fact for sure, I was not there where they said I was at. I was at home. That's a fact. And is there was there anybody, you know, you were married at the time? Yes, I mean, was your wife home then, too? Yes. And was she ever questioned? I mean, when you... Yes, the GBI, the GBI questions her. And she she accounted for your whereabouts, saying you were home? I, I, I didn't ask. Okay. But then the GBI, then they, we didn't hear no more out of, out of it. The confusing part for me is that our three eyewitnesses, Chuck, Denise, and Rat, have discrepancies in their stories. Mainly... The vehicles don't match. And at the end of episode 8, we heard yet another person saying that they had an eyewitness account the night of Rhonda's abduction. I told you that two more people had come forward. It's now actually three more people. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. My name's Mitchell Wood. I'm 49 years old. I went to school with Rhonda and Mickey and everybody that I think was involved. When Mitchell Wood called me last week and told me he had seen Rhonda at the Swanee Swifty that night, of course, I wanted to hear his story. You'll notice as you hear it, there are, again, discrepancies between some of the other accounts. Me and my cousin was riding around Hazelhurst and I stopped at the Swanee Swifty to let him run in and get us a drink. And Rhonda come out to the car and was talking and 
asked to ride with us, you know, and I was fine with it, you know. Every time she went to go get close to the car, Mickey would come running out of the store and stop her from getting in the car. And I think it was like the fourth time she tried to get in the car, he told her, look, you know we've got to go meet somebody, and you know what's going to happen if we don't show up. You know, you, you know exactly what's going to happen. So I, I rode off and went through town and circled. It, we had a little circle we'd go through in Hazelhurst. And I made that little circle and I stopped back at the store again, was going to let her ride with me regardless, but they had already left. So before I could back up and leave, Marky Hall was flying through town with his lights on, siren on and all. And curiosity, I, I just followed him, you know. He went through a, the red light and turned right and went down to the road the car was found on. Being a curious teenager, Mitchell headed in the direction the police car was headed. He says he found himself passing by the dirt road where Rhonda's car was, and there were several people there. A pickup truck was positioned in such a way that it looked to be just about to pull off the dirt road out onto the main road. Right, and uh, Mickey Beecher and, and John and there was a person in between them that was looking backwards. I, I can't say who it was, but I know I know I distinctly seen Mickey's face, and I know I distinctly seen John's face. What kind of vehicle were they in? The two-tone Ford, gray Ford. But anyway, that's I seen them there, so I kept going because of the way they were acting in that store. I kept going, rode on past, and turned around to come back. And by this time, they had done turned towards town and were gone. So they were already gone when you came back by. Right. So I, I pulled down the dirt road, and I could see Mark, the headlight, I mean, the blue lights on the cop car. So I went down, and Marky was standing there beside Rhonda's car. And it was funny because he had his arms held out straight out on each side of his body and was jumping and spinning at the same time and, and looking all out in the woods and everything. And then I asked him, said, what's going on? And he said, well, if you don't want to get in bad trouble, you need to leave. You need to leave now. So I backed up and I left. So at that point, was it just Marky that was there? Yes, it was just Marky. It was only Marky at the site at the time. It was his car. His car was parked behind Rhonda with the lights on, with the strobe lights and all on. Her car was sitting there still running with the lights on. So his car was behind hers? Yes. Now, the first thing that stands out to me here is that not only is Mitchell saying he saw Mickey, John, and an unidentified person there in a truck, but that when he came back, Marky was there alone with Rhonda's car she was nowhere to be seen. But the positioning of the deputy car is different than that which we heard from Rat. And Chuck and Denise said Marky was there in a truck with someone in the passenger seat. And Milton and others had seen the tire tracks at a 90 degree angle behind Rhonda's car. Is it possible both events happened? That a truck was there earlier, took off, and then later on, the deputy car arrived. What time do you think this was? It had to be between 8 and, I'd say, 8 and 10 to 10, no later than 10.30. Because, like I say, I was back in Alma, Georgia, by 11. He says no later than 10.30 because he was home by 11 p.m., and it was a roughly 30-minute drive from there to his house. 
and he pointed out that there were three men in the truck, Mickey, John, and another man whose face he couldn't see. So is it possible that if he were there earlier than 10.30, this might have been during the time I was told Mickey and some of his friends were out riding around pranking people with a blue light? Or was that actually not Rhonda's car he saw Marky with? And how do we explain his saying he encountered Marky? If Marky says he went home after he got off work that night around 5 p.m. and didn't leave. And did you see Marky the first time you went by? No. So you never told that to anybody? Not for years I didn't. And, and who did you tell when you finally did say something? Well, Milton's the first person I told about it. I mean, I, I talked to the, a guy who was working with me whenever he told me we were going to Milton's house. I, I mean, I told him then, I, yeah, I feel like I needed to really tell Milton what I saw back then. I also told Ben Glosson, a city cop here in Hazelhurst. Is he still a cop there? As far as I know, he is. He took a statement from me. I wrote, I wrote, a, I filled out a statement for him and everything for him. Rhonda and Mitchell had gone to church together since they were little kids, so I asked him if she knew Marky. But she did definitely know him. Yes. I need to find the officer Mitchell said he made a statement to and find out if that's still in the book somewhere. I need to get to the bottom of this. Mitchell said he did know Rhonda well, and Milton verified that. He told me both Mickey and John were present at the Swanee Swifty, but that John didn't say much. He was quiet and off to the side. I've heard from others that this was typical behavior of John. He says Mickey seemed agitated and kept saying something like, Rhonda, we need to go meet him. And Mitchell did say that he spoke with Rhonda at the Swanee Swifty, so I prodded him on that a bit more. Did you happen to notice, I mean, were there cars pumping gas or was there anybody else in the parking lot or? Well, I, I know there were other people that went in and out. You know, I, I, don't, I can't remember anybody who, like, as far as who. Mitchell says he left, took a lap or two around the town strip, and a few minutes later returned. But Rhonda and everyone else was gone. Then he saw Marky drive past in a hurry in his deputy car. And this is where things get a little more interesting. I mentioned there were three more eyewitness accounts. You just heard Mitchell, but I was also contacted by someone who claimed their parents had an eyewitness account very similar to Mitchell's. It took quite a bit of work to get in touch with these people, who we'll call Bob and Elaine. Elaine, in particular, was extremely hesitant to speak with me at first, but eventually agreed on the condition that, for the podcast, she remain anonymous. And if any information she provided is needed for legal reasons at any point, she would only be willing to speak with law enforcement outside of Jeff Davis County, citing the corruption she's encountered for many years as a county employee. As Bob and Elaine are no longer married, I spoke with them separately and without each other's knowledge. This is Elaine's story. I'll read you part of the transcript from our conversation, and I'll pause from time to time to help explain this a bit and make it easier to follow.
Me and my ex-husband, husband at the time, had pulled into the Swanee Swifty. A grayish-colored truck pulled in right beside us, and she, Rhonda, got out of the truck. Also, another person was in the truck with her. I said to her, she must be getting ready for a party or something, and Rhonda replied that they had been at the flag painting party, fixing it all night long. And we've about got it done, she said. Rhonda goes inside the Swanee Swifty, and my husband was in the car digging out change for cigarettes or something. By the time we get into the store, it's just a little bitty store, she's about to walk back outside. When we come out, we're fixing to get in our truck, and she gets in her car. Now, Elaine actually described Rhonda's car to me and the position it was parked in, at an angle off to the side of the store, which is accurate according to accounts from Rhonda's friends who she carpooled with that night. Elaine continues, Rhonda began to back out onto Franklin Street, so we waited for her. She pulled up to the stop sign at Tallahassee Street, which is the main road, and we pulled up behind her. She made a left turn, And before we could pull out, here comes a cop car up behind her. Now, as the cop car drove past the street that Bob and Elaine were on, she says that she could clearly see the face of the officer inside as he passed beneath a bright streetlight on the corner. The driver looked directly over at Bob and Elaine. She tells me the driver in that deputy car was Mark Hall Jr., They pulled out behind him, and the three cars continued on until they made their way toward Bell Telephone Road. Bob and Elaine turned off to go home, and the deputy car and Rhonda's car continued on. Elaine says that this all transpired somewhere around 10.15 to 10.30 p.m. Elaine also mentioned one other thing that stood out to her about the deputy car that night. He didn't have his lights on. Not the blue lights, not even headlights were on, which stood out to her as odd. When I spoke a couple days later to Bob, he didn't remember quite as much as Elaine did, but he remembered saying hello to Rhonda, and he did remember the deputy car pulling up behind her, and the three cars traveling together until they turned off to go home. He didn't get a good look at the driver, but he did point out to me before I had a chance to ask that he noticed the deputy car had no lights on, not even headlights, and it stuck out to him as well as being very unusual. So now we need to figure out whose truck Rhonda was allegedly getting out of. Maybe they can confirm or deny part of this story. Mitchell was riding with his cousin who drove a red Ford Escort, so it wouldn't have been him, and neither Bob nor Elaine recalled anyone else being at the Swanee Swifty. But that's not to say there weren't other people there. They just didn't notice them as they did Rhonda, because they spoke with her. Which brings me to another point I feel it's important to make here. Every single eyewitness account we've heard has both similarities and differences. And this is normal given circumstances like these. None of these eyewitnesses knew that this would be the last time Rhonda was seen alive. They weren't thinking, I need to remember every detail about this encounter. For each of them, it was just another Thursday night in Hazelhurst. An investigator friend of mine told me recently that if you had a room with five people in it, and someone ran into that room and swiped a laptop off of a table and ran back out, 
you would get five varying eyewitness accounts. Some would say the culprit had facial hair. Others would say he was clean-shaven. Some might say he had a blue shirt on. Others might say the shirt was black. But all of the accounts would be similar, and together they would help paint the full picture of what actually happened. And that's what I'm trying to do here. Mitchell's story could still be true. If he had been there earlier, could Rhonda have left with one of the men in this grayish-colored truck and then come back? Mitchell did say Mickey was there and kept telling Rhonda that they needed to go see someone. Could they have left to go see this person and then come back? Mickey dropped her off and she got in her car. And how does this work with the story we heard about Brent Haynes dropping her off after they left the party? Could Rhonda have been at the Swanee Swifty several different times that night? And could the deputy Mitchell says he saw racing by with the lights and sirens on have actually not been Marky? I had placed a call out to Don Creamer to see what he remembered regarding the time that Marky was called to the scene that night because Marky told me I'd have to check with him to verify this. And this past Thursday, I missed a call from Don Creamer. But he left me a voicemail. Yes, sir, this is Don Creamer. It's around 6 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon, Thursday afternoon, I believe. Anyway, I just got home and got your message. But uh, I've got to tell you this. I've been advised or been asked to not answer any more questions because I'm a potential witness on a criminal case, and whatever, but that's what I've been told, and just told not to answer any more questions to any social media. Didn't call you by name, or didn't say anything about your podcast or whatever, just said I was a potential witness on a criminal, upcoming criminal case, and do not be discussing the case. I'm sorry, and you have a great day. Bye. Fox Hunter is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Key cover art provided by Joe Freeman Jr. Keychalis 9032, 2015. Joe Freeman Jr.com. is a 10-episode series available every Tuesday morning. Follow us on social media at Fox Hunter Podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.